0: But let me lead some prayer before we hear God's words. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus, and thank you that he was a great teacher of the law. We remember on the Sermon on the Mount, when people heard him, they were astonished at his teaching about these words. And we pray that we would be amazed and we'd understand and we'd receive his teaching now, for Jesus' sake. Amen.
1: Matthew chapter 5 starting at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the
0: To introduce myself, I'm uh, the other Andrew. We're going to have our reading from Exodus 20. We've been looking at these verses every week. We're on the sixth commandment, but we read them all each week. Uh, Page 61. Um, Well done for braving the elements. You've made a wise decision. It's, It's good to hear God's word. So... Page 61, I will read verses 1 to 2 of Exodus 20, and then we'll all read 3 to 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is his. Great. So if you have one of these sheets, this will be a help to you because there's some notes, some headings inside it that we're going to look at. We're looking, as I said, at the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. This is God's top ten, and we're looking at number six. Um, it's just four words, you shall not murder. You're probably thinking, how are we going to spend much time on this? It's actually only two words in the original, in Hebrew, and it's surely a commandment that everyone can agree on. That's, isn't this the one that we can just say, well, we all agree, and then sit down? Um, so if we were to go out into Greenwich now, and assuming there wasn't a storm on and we met people, um, and we asked them, do you think murder is wrong? I hope that 10 out of 10 people we talked to would, say, would agree. And it, if they said no, I don't think murder's wrong. We probably would cut short the interview and talk to someone else instead. Um, and probably there'd be v- vaguely the same reason. It's just wrong or, um, well, of course it's wrong. If, if we're going to have a, a society that works and that functions, we have to agree, don't we, that human life has to be protected. It's a good rule. Everyone can agree on it. But I want to suggest that um, whilst there might be a general agreement about our obligation to protect human life and not to murder, um, the questions actually of which lives deserve to be protected and specifically who decides on that question are very much up for grabs. And just to try and persuade you that really is the case in our society, I'm going to spend a moment looking at an example. Uh, The debate that's been going on, you might have been following about Um, prenatal testing for Down syndrome. I don't know if you've been following this story but in 2018 uh, there was a new test uh, released on the NHS, NIPT, the um, non-invasive prenatal test and it was introduced on the NHS to screen for Downs and also Edwards and Patau syndrome. And in Iceland uh, when this test was introduced um, it led to 100% of expectant mothers terminating their pregnancies when they discovered Downs. In Denmark, it was 98%. And the test was on the verge of being introduced in the UK. And on the uh, release of it, the comedian uh, Sally Phillips, who herself has an 11-year-old son called Ollie with Down syndrome, and you can see he's full of life and vigour, she created a documentary at that time asking whether it won't be long before we see a world without Down syndrome altogether. She asked, is a whole people group about to be eliminated? And I rewatched um, some of the documentary again this week, and it's very revealing, I think, of how um, societal views are changing and changing quite rapidly in this whole area of the protection of human life. Uh, for example, at one point, um, Sally Phillips interviews Lynn Chitty. She's UCL professor of fetal medicine, and she asks Professor Chitty about the implications of this test for the future of the Down syndrome population. And Professor Chitty comes back at Sally with a question of her own. And she says, how do you feel about later on in life? Because Ollie is likely to outlive you. How do you feel about that prospect? And Sally responds, this is uh, talking about her son, the answer to that is not Termination. The answer is that if we have a a society that's unable to care for people, the problem is not the person, but the society. So here's a mother um, whose vulnerable son will very likely outlive her. And she needs a society that will value the vulnerable once she's gone. And instead, Sally is faced with someone who thinks that the better course of action Would have been terminating her child to avoid this situation. And underlying that assumption is not just that it's permissible, but that it's positively virtuous to end the life of the weak and the vulnerable. And here's here's the uh, catchphrase, and the reason is because, this is my own view, uh, my own uh, wording of that view society should not be burdened by the weak, especially when there are simple ways to get rid of them. That's the underlying view that's being expressed. And I raise this issue just to show that it's not a given in our society which lives need to be protected. And that's part of the reason I hope that we are interested and want to be clear on this issue. The second question I, I um, suggested was who decides? A little bit later, as if, if you follow the documentary, um, Sally interviews Harvard geneticist Professor George Church. He's at the forefront of uh, developing tests like this Um, And as Sally raises the danger in this uh, conversation about people having ever more information about their children and ever more opportunities to eliminate those with undesirable traits, Professor Church responds by saying that the responsibility is really for people like Sally to try and make a case for why having children with Down syndrome is such an enriching experience. And he urges Sally, if this, this is what she believes then she should spread the word that those with Down syndrome are valuable members of society. And you can see what's going on behind there. The assumption is, I'll put it on the screens, in order to live, you need to be able to persuade society of why you deserve to live. Why do you deserve to live? Uh, What are you contributing? And if those with Down syndrome are able to prove to society before the court of societal opinion, then they can live. But what about if society isn't convinced? That's the question. I know um, this is a very provocative way to raise this whole issue, but the reason I do it this way is because I want us to see that these issues of which lives deserve to be protected and who decides are very real questions for us in our society. They're, They're questions where we need to go back again To the Bible and to discover some real answers to. And I hope, especially if you're looking in um, and you're not yet a convinced Christian and we're delighted you're here, I hope you will discover as we look at the Bible that there is a better and there is a more freeing way to live than our society is currently uh, proclaiming. And the two main points that we're going to be covering today, and they're on your sheets, they're the Bible's answers to these questions. So which lives deserve to be protected? We're going to look at the Bible's answer. Answer, the Lord esteems even the most weak lives as precious. And the question, who decides? We're going to look at the Bible's answer. The Lord has the right to decide when life is to be given or taken away. So that's where we're headed. We're actually going to hit these topics in reverse order, so let's begin with this one. The Lord has the right to decide when life is to be given or taken away. Um, this might seem a very obvious point if you've uh, grown up in the faith and you've been a Bible reader a long time, um, but uh, you, you think, yeah, of course, you know, if the Lord made us, uh, if the Lord owns us, uh, of course he's the one who's in charge of when life is to be given and taken away. I have to admit, it's taken me a lot longer um, than it should have done to grasp this. Um, There's a famous passage, you've probably come across it in Genesis 22, uh, when the Lord tells Abraham to take his son Isaac, who is the miracle child, the son of promise, who's been given to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And Abraham is told by the Lord to sacrifice Isaac. And there's uh, Caravaggio's um, picture of the... Uh, angel interrupting Abraham at the last moment and pointing to the ram who he's meant to sacrifice instead. And I remember reading this account as a student and as a a very modern, um, entitled reader, I was immediately thinking what many of us do, what right does God have to demand such a thing? Isn't it um, immoral for God to even ask Abraham to give his life, to give his son's life? And actually what struck me as I read through it was that this just wasn't an issue for Abraham. If you read the account, uh, Abraham doesn't push back, Abraham doesn't protest at all. And actually this wasn't an issue at all for um, Moses, the writer of Genesis, because there's no explanation from God in the passage or from Moses defending why this can be justifiable in this unusual situation. Apparently it was just obvious to the first readers, that this is something the Lord has every right to ask, if he wants to. And of course, if you read through the Bible, it is very obvious in context. So the, the um, incident follows only a few pages after. Um, Genesis 2:17. Adam, the first human being, is told that on the day that he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will surely die. And then in the next chapter, chapter 3, we're told that all humanity now lives under this sentence of death. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, wonderfully, God in his grace, if you know the story, he doesn't demand Abraham's life on that day. Sorry, not Abraham's, Adam's life. Uh, God kindly lets Adam uh, live a bit longer. But the truth remains that for Adam and for every one of us, especially uh, given that we live as rebels in God's world, every new day... Is more than we deserve. Every day is a gift. It is a gift of grace. When we wake up each morning and our hearts are beating, as I hope they are, that is a day to give thanks. This is more than we deserve. And I think that is a very important starting point for us as we approach this topic, as we consider some of the ways in which. Uh, killing is allowed in the Bible. We're going to think in a moment about some of the things which are prohibited and not allowed by the sixth commandment. But first, we're going to consider some of the things that are not prohibited. Uh, For example, killing in self-defense, killing in war, killing as capital punishment. And as we um, approach these topics, I want us to have in mind what we've just covered, that the Lord gets to say. It's his right to determine who has uh, the right to live and the right to die. That's the starting point for Christians as we approach this whole topic. So let's first hit um, killing in self-defense. And Exodus 22, which you could probably work out, comes two chapters after the Ten Commandments, states, I've actually got it on the screens, if a thief, this is 22 verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in, and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So in other words, if if someone has no choice but to use lethal force as a way to defend him or herself from an intruder, they're not guilty for killing in self-defense. But then verse 3 adds, but if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. Which means if um, there are observers who can see what was happening, And could discern that the killing wasn't actually necessary. This is no longer killing in self-defense. This is murder. So killing in self-defense then is not a violation of the sixth commandment. Nor, in fact, is killing in war under certain circumstances. Obviously, um, peace is always the goal. Um, uh, But of course, the Bible knows and the Bible writers are aware that we live in a very broken world and that sometimes war is necessary to defend peace. That's a picture of some of the allied servicemen in World War II whose sacrifices we were honouring, weren't we, on Remembrance Day. And we can see that war is sometimes permitted because God sent Israel into war sometimes. It's one of the ways that we know that it is permitted. He described himself as a warrior God who fought alongside them on certain occasions. And then when we get into the New Testament, there's a very similar outlook. For example, we're told in Romans 13 um, that the state is given the authority of the sword uh, to be the agent of God's wrath and to protect the innocent. And then when Jesus encountered soldiers, he encountered the centurion, you remember, in Matthew 8. He doesn't tell him, the first thing you need to do is give up your day job. You can't be a soldier and follow me. No, he he does the opposite. He says, go on your way, and he commends him for his faith. Effectively, he says, carry on what you're doing. Uh, Or when soldiers ask John the Baptist in Luke 3 what repentance is going to involve for them, what does John say? Resign from the Roman army, that's your first step. No, he says, go and be an honest and honourable soldier. That's what you need to do. So the sixth commandment does not automatically prohibit killing in war. And finally, the sixth commandment doesn't prohibit um, capital punishment necessarily either. That is the death penalty. In fact, in in Genesis 9, at the beginning of the Bible, um, God explains to Noah that capital punishment is the appropriate penalty for murder. I'll put it on the screens there. God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, that's killing, murder, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Uh, So we might instinctively think the other way. We might think, well, that capital punishment is an assault on the image of God in man. But the Bible says that capital punishment is a defense of his image. Do you see that in the verse? Human life is so precious, the Bible says, that the taking of it is to be punished very severely. And actually behind this is the whole uh, principle that comes up again and again in the Bible that's sometimes called lex talionis, the law of the punishment fitting the crime. Uh, You'll be familiar probably with the terms eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's this principle. um, Punishment fits the crime. I think this is um, pretty foreign to us, um, partly actually because our legal system has been in the process of shifting um, to what C.S. Lewis describes in his essay as the humanitarian theory of punishment, whereby punishment is not principally for retribution to fit the crime any longer, But very often it's just um, a deterrent or it's just a means of um, curing the offender. Uh, But as Suis Lewis points out uh, in his essay, this approach has the danger of having no limit on the kind of punishment that could be given. What if the research shows that the deterrent and the cure for, let's say, theft is best served by chopping off both hands of the thief? The humanitarian theory has no principled objection against that. No, we must use... Well, the the biblical view is that justice is best served by always observing and protecting this principle of retribution, the punishment fitting the crime. And it's this underlying principle which we see operating, don't we, in Genesis 9, where the taking of life is punished By the taking of life, the punishment fits the crime. Uh, One of the the main objections to um, capital punishment today is the concern about it being applied mistakenly to innocent people. And of course, that is a terrible tragedy if that happens, which it does. And uh, we should, of course, be, be working not just to minimize that happening, but to care for the families of those victims. I think it's worth reflecting that this law was instituted back in Genesis 9 in a time before DNA testing. It was instituted where in an age where the possibility of injustice was arguably higher than it is today and yet God judged that despite human inaccuracies in administering justice it was still best to have it as a principle of law even so. So I'd argue that At a principled level, the sixth commandment does not prohibit capital punishment. So we've been considering, haven't we, how the Lord has the right to decide when life is to be given or taken away. And next we're going to consider how the Lord esteems even the weakest lives as very precious to him. And we're under the the first point we were thinking, weren't we, about areas which weren't included under the Sixth Commandment, self-defense, war, capital punishment. Under this point, we're going to be considering some areas which are included under the Sixth Commandment, some of which wouldn't be considered wrong in much of our society today, especially suicide and euthanasia and abortion. But first, let's consider um, the whole topic of manslaughter and negligence. As we've seen already with that verse about intruders breaking into your property, the Bible is very concerned about what the intention is behind a killing. But there are situations where, just because the killing wasn't intentional, it can still be wrong. For example, in Exodus 21, um, 18 to 29, I'll I'll gloss it for you. It says, basically, if your ox gores someone to death with its horns, probably hasn't happened to us, but it apparently used to happen a bit in the old days. If your ox kills someone, you're not necessarily to blame, but if your ox has already done a bit of goring in the past and you've ignored it and just carried on regardless, and if you haven't kept that ox cooped up as you should have done, then it turns out you are to blame. So if we don't take steps to prevent an accident, uh, like we're drinking and driving or we're distracted by our phone whilst driving, then whatever the law happens to say, we may be breaking the sixth commandment if someone dies as a result. Uh, There's a similar law in Deuteronomy 28 stating that, this is on our screens, when you build a new house... You shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the blood, the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So this is saying that part of me valuing human life and loving my neighbor involves making sure that when we sit up on the roof together, as people do, still do in those kind of climates, it's my responsibility to do everything I can, including building a guardrail around the edge, to make sure he doesn't accidentally fall off. I was actually very conscious of this principle recently um, when we had a a broken step, concrete step, outside our house. And I knew that I needed to get it uh, fixed as quickly as we could. And in the meantime, I needed to make it obvious not to walk on it. And that is all part of keeping the sixth commandment, not being negligent. It's all part of valuing and protecting human life. And the same is true... For suicide. I'm aware as we touch on this, we're touching quite a few sensitive topics today, and suicide is one of the most painful topics imaginable for those who have been impacted by it with friends or with family. But it is a topic that we need to think about with respect to the Sixth Commandment. And in the Bible, suicide is a sin, it's not the unforgivable sin but it is a sin. Obviously, that's not the kind of thing we want to blurt out, you know, pastorally when we're comforting those who have lost a loved one. But it's good for us not to be ignorant of the Bible's teaching. There may, of course, be extreme cases where for medical reasons, perhaps a suicidal person has clearly lost control of their faculties. There may be exceptions, but ordinarily, suicide is wrong. And there are five instances of suicide in scripture, I've put the references on your um, handouts, and all of them are condemned, they're all in a context of shame and disgrace. And when more godly characters ask God to take their lives, for example Moses and Elijah and Jonah, God never agrees to their requests. And in the cases of Jonah and Job, uh, God clearly thinks they're wrong even to ask what they do. Uh, When a celebrity takes their own life, Um, famously in 2014, Robin Williams did this, Um, the instinctive response from our media is, well, we've all got our demons, we can't attribute blame to someone for that. And it's understandable people respond like that. It feels compassionate, but it's not. In fact, there was a a 10% national spike in suicides across the US in the year following Robin Williams' death, an extra 2,000 deaths. And it's thought that part of the reason for that is the positive way the press report on it. Let me share a quote from Julie Gossack, who's a mother who's suffered through the suicides of five family members. You can scarcely even imagine that. And she said this, Suicide is not a genetic trait, nor is it a family curse. Suicide is a sinful choice made by an individual. This statement is neither unloving nor disrespectful. It is the truth. I dearly loved my family members that committed suicide, but their choices were sinful. I do want us to be clear on this, because in the long run, we don't help people, we don't serve people, especially struggling people, by refusing to tell them that suicide is displeasing to God. You see, our lives are very precious to our Creator, even when we've concluded that they're pointless. And it's good to remind people that they still matter. They still matter to God, even if they don't feel like they do. And that brings us on to a related topic of Uh, euthanasia. Euthanasia is the the so-called mercy killing of those whose lives have been deemed unlivable for some reason. And we need to make some distinctions here. Um, It's not wrong to terminate treatment for a very sick person. If someone says, I've got no desire to live at all costs, that's an understandable decision, and we should respect that decision. But that's very different from actively terminating someone's life, which, whether they ask for it or not, is still breaking the sixth commandment. But apart from being displeasing to God, assisted suicide laws also end up having terrible effects on the society at large. Um, The Netherlands was the first nation to allow assisted suicide, and today more and more of the requests for assisted suicide are coming, not from the patients, but from family members, relatives who are finding their sick or elderly relatives too much of a drain and are requesting ways to get rid of them. Um, During the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands in the Second World War, Dutch physicians bravely refused to obey orders by the Nazis to end the lives of the sick and the elderly. They said no. But as Malcolm Muggridge has noted, it took only one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. Because now, of course, Dutch physicians do these killings routinely. But of course, whatever a certain government says... The Lord esteems every human life as precious to him. Aging parents are precious, even when they're suffering with severe dementia. Uh, Non-verbal children are precious. Severely disabled adults are precious. All people, all lives are precious to God. And they all deserve our care and protection. And finally, we come to perhaps the most controversial topic of all, which is abortion. Um, according to World Health Organization data, there were over 42 million abortions last year globally. 42 million. Abortions have now dwarfed every other individual cause of death, including, for example, deaths due to disease, which by comparison is only 13 million. In England and Wales, abortions hit a record 200,000 last year, and now one in three women in this country have one or more abortions across their lifetime. And of course, this isn't just an issue out there somewhere. Of course, it's going to be an issue for us in here. And so I want to speak um, in recognition that this is a very painful and personal topic for many of us. And yet, of course, uh, my job is not to duck this subject. I want to speak truthfully. And if you hear me out, I hope I'm going to speak graciously as well. Because in Christ, there is always... Abundant grace available for those who will seek it. Now it's a scientific fact that life begins at conception. Every embryology textbook will agree that life begins at the moment when a sperm fertilizes an oocyte and together they form a zygote. That's uncontroversial. And the Bible consistently teaches that human life is precious right from its beginnings. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, Psalm 139. Or as the angel tells Joseph, that which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. It was at Jesus' conception that the Son of God entered our world. And more than that, in the Bible, the unborn are protected by the force of law. Now, the uh, intentional killing of an unborn child was so um, abhorrent to ancient peoples like the Israelites, like the Assyrians and so on, that there was no need for a specific biblical law prohibiting it. But there is a law in the Bible about unintentionally killing an unborn child. It's in Exodus 21, and it says this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now the significant thing here is that the accidental killing of an unborn child is deserving in the Bible the same penalty as the accidental killing of an adult. Both offenses are deserving of death in the Bible, so there's no difference between the two crimes. There's no difference in the value or the significance of the two victims. And of course the intentional killing of an unborn child would therefore be much more serious than that. Now, the Bible describes God as especially concerned for the weak and the helpless. And the unborn represent humanity in our most helpless form. And therefore, it's right that Christians advocate for the protection of the unborn. And I know that many in this room are already engaged with this as an issue, both praying and providing a voice for those voiceless members of our society. But of course in talking about this issue, and I I mentioned this with regard to suicide and it's true with any of the sins we've touched on today, abortion is not an unforgivable sin. That's very good news. Jesus offers forgiveness for women who have aborted a child. Jesus offers forgiveness to men who have encouraged their partners to abort a child. Jesus offers forgiveness to employees of abortion clinics. And Jesus also offers forgiveness to all of us who are apathetic and who turn a blind eye to this great evil in our society. Now outside of Jesus, outside of Christ, of course, what are we going to want to do? We're going to want to either ignore this topic or we'll want to downplay it. What other options are there outside of Christ? What else can we do? It's too painful for us as a society to stare this in the face. We don't even want to see pictures of it. But in Christ, there is a much better way. You see, in Jesus, we are free to be real. We're free to call sin what it is. And yet at the same time, we're free to know full and abundant forgiveness. Forgiveness. Jesus has won this forgiveness for all of us who will turn to him. And please, if this is an issue for you, as it will be for some, uh, and if it would be helpful for you, please don't leave today without talking about it. Uh, Please talk to me or Andrew or someone you trust. It would be brilliant today for this to be an opportunity to work this issue through. But as we close, I want us to consider finally, this is point three, how Jesus applies this teaching of the sixth commandment, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And the topic, the the heading rather for point three is this, all of us are in need of reconciliation and all of us are called to be reconcilers. So in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, many of us studied this last term, so we know it well, and Naomi read it for us as well. Jesus first quotes um, the sixth commandment. Do you Remember, you shall not murder. And then Jesus helpfully opens up a deeper inner dynamic which lies behind murder. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he's saying that the sixth commandment isn't so much an isolated rule, As it is a guide rail to help us on our journey and to stop us heading down the wrong path towards destruction. And the gate, the turning point into that wrong path, Jesus says, is labelled anger. That's how we enter that path. And that leads down a track called bitterness and quarrelling. And that track leads eventually to judgment and hell. Whether we actually end up taking a human life or not, that's where it leads. So if we're those who insist on justifying our anger, if we're those who insist on pouring out the cup of our wrath on others, there is another cup waiting for us to drink God's wrath. And as is typical with Jesus, he takes one of the commandments, which many of us would be feeling probably pretty self-righteous about. You know, As I said, you shall not murder at the beginning. You were thinking, oh great, there's at least one I can tick off. And he turns it around and he shows that this is one that catches all of us out. Anger. Uh, When did we last speak angrily to a colleague or a family member? When did we last lose our rag with the children or with someone who cut us up on the road? Uh, When did we last silently judge someone or store up bitterness against another person? And Jesus says, if that is us, then we are in desperate danger. Uh, We're turning down that path that will lead to destruction. And so what do we do? Well, the answer is we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we hear Jesus praying, Father, take this cup away from me yet not what I will, but what you will. And what is the cup that Jesus trembles before? Of course, we know it's the cup of God's righteous anger against sinners like you and me, sinners who have not protected life as we should have done, sinners who who have given in to unrighteous anger again and again. And Jesus says in the garden, if that is the only way my people can be forgiven, I'll do it. I will be murdered for these angry murderers. I will drink the wrath which should belong to those who have poured out their wrath on others. And as well as granting us reconciliation, Beautifully, graciously, at enormous cost to himself. Jesus then calls us to be agents of reconciliation to the world. He says, don't let a grudge, don't let bitterness take root in your life. And this is a priority, Jesus says, even above offering worship to God. In that section, he said, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We're not to mess around with bitterness and anger, Jesus says. It will drag us down that path towards destruction. Instead, in Christ, there is a better way. As those who have received mercy, abundant mercy, our calling is to show mercy to others. We're called to be the people who reconcile as quickly as we can, In the Lord's Prayer, which is a chapter on from this, we're to pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. It's a a condition of our forgiveness that we are those who offer forgiveness. It's fundamental. And as Jesus also says in this same sermon, blessed are the peacemakers that they will be called the children of God. Jesus says, if you want to be someone who shows the family likeness of your heavenly Father... What better way is there than this? Our Father is the great peacemaker. He is the one who is supremely slow to anger and quick to reconcile. So let's resolve to follow in His footsteps and be those who imitate our heavenly Father. There will be a chance for Q and A um, and chance for you to voice questions. But I've had a couple of questions there as well for coffee questions, but why not use the time now, just a, a moment, just to pause and to reflect before the Lord? Perhaps things that have been upsetting, perhaps things that have trodden our toes. Why not bring these things to the Lord, and then we'll have our prayers.